Welcome, everyone, to this week's At Any Rate podcast. My name is Pat Locke. I'm part of the Global FX Strategy Team based out of New York. Joined today by James Nelgan out of London. James, uh, thanks for joining. Uh, some important developments recently in our space of late. Dollars finally started consolidating after a couple quarters of weakness. Global growth is still pretty solid, but overall isn't quite what it was a few months ago. And as a result, the dollar's found you know, a bit of footing over the last month or so. Um, really, though, I think kind of a key theme for us is that there, there's really no clear-cut central scenario right now. Uh, if you look at what our global economists have been publishing, they have a scenario tree that breaks down different possible outcomes for the global economy. It's a wide range, you know, bridging soft landing all the way to a global hard landing. Uh, but really what I think is most notable is that those, the actual probabilities that they assign across four different outcomes, they're all in this kind of 15 to 35% range. Uh, so basically, there's no real clear-cut central scenario for market participants to really latch onto at this point, uh, especially with inflation not coming down you know, quite as quickly as some would have hoped. Um, it's been hard for, for markets to really kind of coalesce around central themes that have durability beyond you know days or a week or so at a time. And I think that's been a big reason why FX trading has been you know harder than it was last year. Um, but also on top of that, you know, we've got some big risks looming on the horizon, debt ceiling in particular. Uh, we're about a month from our X date now. Uh, we've had the first early negotiations in D.C., but no real sign yet that this can get kind of accomplished and, and suspended early. So brink brinkmanship is still pretty much the base case for us. Uh, markets are really starting to take notice now. Um, you've got more T-bills cheapening, similar to what we discussed last week. And the issue generally has become much more of a central part of client conversations lately. We've provided a framework where the dollar can underperform the reserve currencies, uh, but generally should do better against kind of the cyclical blocks, uh, especially you know if risk assets more broadly are under pressure. And notably, that's what clients seem to think as well, um, at least according to a survey that was conducted this week by our rate strategist colleagues. Uh, the average response for the dollar was to underperform the yen and Swiss by about 2.5%. Uh, to underperform euro by about one and a half percent, and then finally to, to trade you know closer to flat um, against the more pro-cyclical EM FX block. So that generally conforms to the framework that we put forth um, you know back in January. But really, until I think in, until this issue is resolved, you know, macro themes might take a bit of a backseat in the next few weeks. Uh, but nevertheless, James, you know, I'd like to turn to you. You cover a lot of our European currencies, and uh, we've had some interesting developments lately. Let's maybe start with sterling. Um, at the top performer in the G10 space this year, cable's been pretty closely correlated with the euro dollar. Um, some people have remarked that it's trading a bit more like a reserve currency this year. Uh, but the latest monthly GDP there was pretty weak. Um, so momentum in the UK might be you know, fading a bit as we headed into the second quarter. How about you walk us through uh, your current framework for thinking about sterling and maybe any targets that you have in mind, um, either for cable or for euro sterling? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Patrick. So, uh, as you say, you know, sterling has outperformed over, over the last few months. Um, you know, clearly in the first part of the year, growth and inflation have surprised to, to the upside in the UK. And uh, this week, the Bank of England removed uh, the recession from, from their growth forecasts. Um, the UK recovery is, has pretty much almost entirely been, been driven by the unwind of, of a terms of of trade shocks, so obviously gas prices have, have fallen quite dramatically, but UK CPI still very sticky here, uh, with, with headline inflation above ten percent, 
and surprising forecasters to, to the upside, including including on core. Uh, so from here, just thinking about sterling in terms of the the macro scenarios going forward, there's a, there's a few di few different plausible scenarios. You know, if CPI continues to be this sticky, then markets might begin to question the, the sustainability of of a terms of trade trade driven recovery, especially for the consumer who who wouldn't be able to fully feel the benefit of lower inflation and and still has to adjust to the impact of of resetting mortgages. So in that scenario. There is a risk that sterling's reaction function shifts back to last year where, where higher rates were seen as, as negative for growth, uh, negative for the currency due to, due to their impact on growth. Um, alternatively, you know, if, if CPI is less sticky and, and falls more noticeably, then uh, obviously growth might be more supported. But I think in that scenario, Bank of England rate pricing starts to look a bit more stretched relative to the rest of G10. You know, the UK has one of the most aggressively priced central banks in G10. And, and that comes at a time where cable is is pretty much the most sensitive pair to rate spreads in G10. So if Bank of England rhetoric shifted in the more dovish direction, if CPI came down more noticeably, which we, we suspect it would, um, then sterling might choose to, to embrace the implications of lower inflation for rates rather than uh, the benefits to growth. Um, so just from kind of a macro analysis uh, scenario analysis perspective, we think uh, things are skewed uh, domestically towards the bearish uh, sterling viewpoint from here. And then in terms of positioning as well, I mean, positioning wise, you know, we we think it's we think sterling's a well-owned high beta currency. Uh, you know, the market has clearly either spent time closing out shorts or building longs, given that it's been you know been the the best performing performing G10 currency versus the dollar. Uh, over the last uh, three months, you know, we're breaking out above 125. Um, but now you, you overlay that with what's going on with global cyclical indicators. You know, I've, I've been quite concerned over the last week or so by the breakdown in a few kind of key cyclical indicators. So whether it's the copper gold ratio or Russell versus the S&P or cyclical defensive equity baskets or 530s uh, rates curves across DM. That uh, they're starting to point towards more late cycle conditions, and uh, we're starting to see a bit of that in the data as well. Obviously, we saw a bit of a spike in jobless claims in the U.S. this week. Now, uh, the European Centix survey suggested that the, the May PMIs might be slightly soft as well, um, and we've seen the China credit and PMI data undershoot as well. So, the, there are signs that the optimism on global growth might be moderating, and I think sterling as a high beta currency should be quite sensitive to that. Um, we run a fair value model for cable, uh, fair values down at 120. Um, that's kind of the medium term target. Uh, you know, I don't expect us to get there straight away, but I think if we see more traction on the cyclical indicators and the data um, and we see the market either look at the UK data as vulnerable to, to sticky CPI or focus on Bank of England pricing, then I, I think we can start to see some weakness in sterling. Thanks for that, James. That's good color. Um, maybe shifting to a couple other currencies that you cover, uh, Swiss and Norway. You know, we've definitely got dynamic backdrops in each of those at the moment as well. Um, Nor Norway is still trading exceptionally weak. Um, and we did have the budget this week, which I know you were watching closely. Uh, Swiss, meanwhile, you know, continues, continues to be touted by clients um, as kind of the preferred debt ceiling hedge vehicle. Um, we've tweaked our forecasts this week for both Swiss and NOC. 
just wondering kind of what your base case is for each of those uh, and where you think we go from here. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's no secret that Noki is uh, very cheap at the moment. Um, so fair value on our models running below 11 for, for Euro Noki. Um, trading very cheap. I think I think the outlook kind of shifted slightly more balanced for Noki. Um, you know, a month or so ago, you, you have had a more hawkish Norges bank. So at, at the last meeting, they shifted the guidance in the, in the slightly more asymmetric direction. So they removed um, a part of the guidance which hinted at lower rates. Um, and you have seen better growth in Norway relative to peers, especially Sweden. Um, so that makes things slightly more balanced. But on the other side, of the scale, you've had, can you know, investor frustration really with uh, continued uh, FX purchases by the Norges Bank. Um, you can quite clearly see that the frustration the market has with that. Well, every time the data is released, but um, you know, our view on that is that it shouldn't be as big a deal for investors because those purchases are, are ultimately a low share of, of daily trading volume and. You know, we don't really find much evidence that they correlate with historical model residuals on, on Noki, but um, quite clearly they, they are a focus. They were a big focus in the Norges Bank press conference um, last week where uh, Governor Bach said that the revised budget for May might be able to set up uh, lower purchases at, at the end of the month. Um, so we did get the revised budget this week, and what we actually saw was the opposite to people's expectations. So our Scandi economist has actually uh, increased his, his expectations for, for Norges bank purchases um, on the back of the budget um, from 1.4 billion a day to 1.7 billion a day. Uh, that was driven by um, higher than expected tax revenues from private petroleum companies to, together with a high dividend from a state-owned energy company, Equinor. And um, that's really, I think, caught investors off guard. I think after the Norges Bank meeting, people started to position for lower purchases um, and Noki started to converge with fair value slowly. Um, and that's reversed after the budget, I think, uh, as, as purchases now look like they, they might even go higher. But I think an even more important factor than that is is the carry carry flows. Sorry. Um, so I think... The market is is been waiting for a long time for the U.S. labor market to weaken, and I, I, the payrolls numbers themselves are still holding up very solid, which I think uh, just uh, pushes people further into into carry trades. And Noki, we've written about before, has obviously a high beta, but a re a low carry relative to that high beta. So it does make for an ideal funder, really, a beta neutral, um, and for the likes of Mex terms of trade neutral um, funder um, if, if you're using Noki to fund those carry trades. So I, I think that flow has is, is potentially weakened Noki more, more than people thought as well. Um, we do have a reversion to fair value in the forecasts, um, but I think the budget this week, you know, and the ongoing carry flows is, is probably going to delay that. So if you have slightly tweaked the forecasts as, as kind of a mark to market, um, I think that the paradox is that, when we do see, if and when we do see the U.S. labor market turn, Noki could actually outperform because that's when you would see the carry trades be unwound, which is slightly counterintuitive because obviously Noki is a, a high beta currency. But um, you know that's something we're watchful for whether, whether Noki is outperforming as on on any risk off. Moving on to Swiss, which you, which you did mention, obviously you mentioned it. It's it's being used as a, a debt ceiling hedge. 
Um, so in reserve currency space, you obviously have a, a few choices in G10. Uh, yen is one of them. And obviously, yen has a, a high beta to US rates. So, you know, in, in the in the less friendly US debt ceiling outcomes, um, it's not entirely clear that US yields fall. So I think yen so far has taken a backseat to Swiss in terms of preference for uh, for hedges for the debt ceiling. And also, obviously, we've seen curves steepen, right? You, you look at 530s in the US and and uh, Germany, they've, they've started to break out steeper. And as that's happened, outright yields haven't really fallen as much. They've been more in a range. So yields haven't fallen as much as maybe the, key, the curve step steepening would uh, suggest. And I think that, again, has pushed people more towards Swiss um, as, a, as a hedge because um, it's less constrained by, by yields. So Swiss screens as one of the, the least correlated to rate spreads in, in G10. So Swiss is is more exposed to, to cyclical risks and debt ceiling tensions. And obviously, as you say, Biden uh, met with congressional leaders for the first time this week. They don't really have much time now until the, the 1st of June um, initial deadline. Uh, um, so we, we do think tensions could, could ratchet up in the, in the last 10 days of May. And obviously you had Treasury Secretary Yellen's letter um, to Congress last week and the CBO re- report, which... Um, which contributed to, to bringing that X date forward and, and putting a bit more focus on, on June 1st as a deadline. So, so Patrick, uh, you've, you've been doing uh, some deep dives on CAD, looking at why um, it, it could have been weaker than it, than it otherwise would be um, and its linkages to the US. Um, where do you come out on that question? Yeah, thanks, James. Um... So if you look at a simple kind of like year-to-date performance metric of G10, um, CAD ranks right in the middle. You know, that might be surprising a little bit on the face, just given that, you know, especially over the last 12 months, we've we've qualified CAD as kind of a dollar proxy. Obviously, it has close and tight linkages to the U.S., and the U.S. is facing some kind of idiosyncratic growth headwinds, uh, particularly with the banking sector. So it stands to reason that CAD should, you know, should have been a bit more a bit weaker overall, um, but in reality, it's managed to generally outperform the rest of the commodity block, um, despite underperforming the European currencies year to date. Um, generally speaking, that has aligned with kind of a cross-sectional look at how currencies have performed against rates repricing year to date. Um, so in that regard, CAD hasn't done anything particularly wrong. It's, it's mid-pack and rates repricing, so by extension, you know, it's mid-pack in terms of FX repricing. Um, I would take a step further back first before I go into it further, but, you know, um, what I would say is that CAD is a clear underperformer in the G10 space. If you kind of wind back, um, to peak kind of, uh, the end of dollar strength back in early November, um, CAD was exceptionally weak, um, on crosses in the fourth quarter, um, and has, has essentially been range bound against the dollar, despite the dollar twice collapse. Uh, that happened in November and December. So bigger picture, uh, CAD I would not qualify as, you know, a strong or a particular outperformer. Um, but I think the question is still valid as to like why we haven't seen more rates repricing on the Canadian side uh, so far this year, given the U.S. stress and given kind of the high beta of Canadian rates uh, to U.S. rates historically. Um, and so one thing we tried to kind of, you know, tease out is, is there more evidence of Canadian banking sector resilience? Um, and we do kind of find that actually in a in a couple of different checks. I mean, a simple kind of assessment of um, bank 
equity sector index performance between the U.S. and Canada shows clear divergence. Uh, Canadian bank equities are basically flat year to date uh, versus about a 15% contraction on the U.S. side. And then we actually, you know, we did a bit of a, um, a dig into a bunch of other kind of like key uh, banking metrics. Um, you know, tier one capital ratios, non-performing loans, uh, liquid assets to liabilities, uh, ROE, things of that nature to try and get kind of a, a cross-sectional assessment of where banks across the G10 space rank. And generally speaking, Canadian banks on a simple ranking system come out on, on kind of the benign side. So that kind of backs up your, your relative equity performance against the U.S. And importantly, that relative performance in the bank sector stocks um, overlays extremely well against uh, end 2023 BOC and Fed uh, pricing. So you've got significant cuts priced into the Fed curve by the end of this year. Uh, Canadian yields have been much stickier kind of over that same horizon. Um, so clearly kind of, um, you know, CAG getting a pass uh, in terms of its banking sector, that's impacted the relative rate spread, which extends into dollar CAD. So basically what I'm saying is all of this is um, essentially being baked in properly into the price in dollar CAD. Uh, to be fair, the U.S.-Canada rates repricing was still quite significant. And on a unifactor model, you would actually have dollar CAD closer to 130. The trouble is, is that oil has actually you know, been moving in the opposite direction. So a, a short-term unifactor oil model would point you around 135. Uh, when you blend that into a short-term two-factor model, dollar CAD is essentially fairly valued. So... Um, you know, it looks like generally CAD hasn't done anything particularly wrong at the moment. Um, in terms of like expecting range breaks or some big trending moves in dollar CAD, I think, um, you know, for now we're a little bit circumspect on those prospects. Um, historically, there's a heuristic where basically, you know, dollar CAD tends to trade range bound if Canadian U.S. spreads and oil are moving in opposite directions. Um, really, you need kind of an environment like September where Canada's losing its rates advantage and oil's moving lower to really get kind of a, a singular trending move in the pair. That's what we got from about 131 to 138 um, over the course of a few weeks at that point. And so, um, you know, oil's definitely under pressure. Um, I do expect kind of the, the rate spread to stabilize a little bit here. That to me does point more towards kind of range-bound trading than a break, you know, below 130, for example, or a move up towards the high 130s. Uh, but nevertheless, I would say that the confluence of factors, the number of risks kind of percolating in the global environment, um, you know, the, the fact that dollar CAD is ultimately fairly well correlated to U.S. recession probabilities, all those things for me continue to point towards a dollar CAD higher bias. But for now, we're not expecting much in the way of big trending moves. And as a result, um, we're pretty neutral in terms of uh, tactical recommendations there. I think with that, we'll leave it there. Thanks everyone for joining. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chasing Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on May 12th, 2023.